Just don't lead him so much. <laughs> Ain't war hell. <laughs> all right, all right, I'm here. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show. I am uh, almost totally unprepared for the show this morning uh, because I spent all morning starting and restarting and restarting and restarting a, a computer that won't work. Remember when I was interviewing the lady who wrote the article about how uh, Hamas hates and kills Al-Qaeda and or ISIS types in the Gaza Strip? And at the end of the interview, uh, we all got cut off. All that happened was I clicked on the chat room window and the whole damn computer broke. And I guess that was the beginning of the end there. So the bad news is that's the Skype computer, which means that um, the interview with Gareth is going to suck because he doesn't have a landline anymore, just a cell phone. I mean, the interview will be great, but it'll sound terrible. So stay tuned for that. And then, luckily, I think uh, Ray McGovern has a landline at his house. I'll have to call him during the break and make sure we're not doing Skype there. Piece of crap. All right, so that's that's every last dime I got. It's a good thing I don't have health insurance because there's no way I was going to be able to pay the health insurance this month anyway. Goddamn Democrats. I hate them so much. I hate them. Uh, no, really. Really. Like, if I was Jesus, I would send them to hell to burn. That's how much I hate them. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, good thing I don't have health insurance. Um, or I don't know what I'd do, because I'm about to have to spend every last dime I've got on really two new laptops, which actually I won't even be able to afford that. I guess I'll at least be able to get one. And backup recorder computer still sort of works. I mean, it starts up. Anyway, so that's what my show is about today. It's about how much I hate Microsoft and their crappy operating systems, how much I hate Dell and their shoddy hardware, and uh, how much I hate my bank account for not being able to compensate for these Microsoft and Dell deficiencies. Uh, also, I'm going to interview uh, Gareth about the war in Syria and Ray about the Cold War with Russia. So that should be all right. I'll try to just shut up and let them talk as much as possible. I know I shouldn't promise that because then I do the opposite every time. Ugh. Anyway, so I'm here. I'm live. Obviously, the show is horrible so far. Maybe it'll get better. I'm sorry that I missed the last two days. That was AT&T completely screwed me. Uh, so I was waiting around for them to send me a new modem. Upload speed 0.1%. That won't get your show done. So, that was the last two days. Uh, today, obviously, mailing it in. I have no idea what's going on in the world. I wasted my entire morning screwing with this piece of garbage. I do know that last night, Sanders completely stomped Hillary Clinton. Isn't that a nice image? Sanders stomped Hillary Clinton better than 60-40 in New Hampshire. Better than 60-40. And Sanders is horrible. This is not, you know, praise for Sanders. But it is praise for Hillary losing. Ha ha. She is 
among the most horrible people on the planet. And I'm including the child rapist murderers of America and, you know, in the Supermax. I'm including Ramsey Youssef. Um, I'm including uh, Omar Bakr al-Baghdadi. She is among the worst human beings to exist, certainly in our present day. And to see the people of New Hampshire, well, to see anyone turn out to support her is just amazing to me. It's hilarious to me. What a bunch of boobs these people are. By the tens of thousands, they come out or... Yeah, by the tens of thousands, they come out to support Hillary Clinton. Really? Amazing. It's amazing. But anyway, uh, far more people came out to oppose her. Better than 60-40. He beat her by 22 points. Smashed her. It was hilarious watching her try to pretend to claim victory at the end of it. Gave this big positive speech about how great everything's going stomped and here's the thing i know tv says yeah but new hampshire's next door to vermont and that's why they like them so much and this and that Eh, that ain't it uh or maybe that's a little bit of it but that ain't it and uh by the way eight years ago she whooped obama in new hampshire by i think 10 points or 12 or something anyway i've been trying to tell y'all uh not that i like to give advice to the democrats but it's just my um observation that she is an absolutely horrible candidate bill clinton is bill clinton i mean never mind he's soaking in the blood of thousands hundreds and hundreds of thousands of innocent human beings but i'm just saying you know to a dumbass american he's charming or something but she's just not she's horrifying she's mom the robot lady from futurama she's Bossy. And everyone hates her. And the fact that the Democratic Party establishment convinced themselves that, geez, if she could strong arm us, I guess she can strong arm the American people into supporting her. They're just completely beyond retarded. They couldn't find another governor or another senator to run. I never even mind Kerry or Biden or somebody like that out of the administration, but. It's just unbelievable that they decided, yeah, I guess we're stuck with Hillary. That's the best we can do. She's the worst candidate ever. Never mind my own personal feelings about her, but I'm just saying, as a sociopathic, uh, you know, political advice give her, uh, give her, her, she is the most horrible choice they could have possibly settled on. And, uh, now Obama really had a, a big part of the Democratic Party establishment behind him. Four years before he even ran. Did you know that? When he did the John Kerry convention speech in 2004, some people came up to him, some some very powerful Democratic Party people came up to him and said, hey, you want to run for president? We're sick and tired of the Clintons. We're looking for something new. How about you? And he said, hey, all right. And they had four years to prepare to run him. Well, three years to prepare to run him. That was the whole thing with Obama. It was They were ready to go. Now, Sanders doesn't have that kind of support from the establishment. But... He's not Hillary Clinton. And I know New Hampshire ain't the whole country, but he just completely stomped her. And she panicked and accused him of being soft on foreign policy. <laughs> Last night. Um, yeah, that's that's a really great line of attack there in a Democratic primary, Hillary. 
remind everybody that you've got far more blood on your hands than Bernie Sanders, probably than he'll even have at the end of eight years. Ridiculous person. She's just horrible. She's as bad as Jeb at campaigning and stuff. Oh, almost. And then the other thing. Uh, yeah, Trump, of course, completely blew him away by 19 or 20 points or something between him and second place. And that was in a, a field of, what, 8, 10 candidates, something like that. Rubio got fifth. Didn't I tell you that Rubio was too stupid to go anywhere? That the establishment like, might like him, but they can't just foist any old buddy on the American people. There's got to be something likable there. And there's not, unless you put Israel before the United States of America... Rubio has absolutely nothing to offer you, except the death of your sons in war. And so, and he's completely ridiculous and stupid and pathetic. And you know people in your life who just cannot be taught. Well, he's one of them. He can't be taught. He's very willing to be taught. Tell me what to say, Bill Crystal. But that's all he can be taught is what to say. Not the real information that he would use, even fake information that he would use to base those statements on. He's dumber than a rock, and now he's sunk to the bottom like a rock. Just like I said he would. Hey, Al Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop. Which is, by the way, what he's doing right now. Selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com Hey, I'll Scott here. First, I want to take a second to thank all the show's listeners, sponsors, and supporters for helping make the show what it is. I literally couldn't do it without you. And now I want to tell you about the newest way to help support the show. Whenever you shop at Amazon.com, stop by ScottHorton.org first. And just click the Amazon logo on the right side of the page. That way, the show will get a kickback from Amazon's end of the sale. It won't cost you an extra cent. And it's not just books. Amazon.com sells just about everything in the world except cars, I think. So whatever you need, they've got it. Just click the Amazon logo on the right side of the page at ScottHorton.org or go to ScottHorton.org slash Amazon. All right, y'all, I'm here. Sorry, I'm not in the chat room, but you could be. It's um, scotthorton.org slash chat, scotthorton.org slash chat, or um, hashtag Scott Horton Show if it's, uh, you know, use external chat application there. It's IRC free node chat room, hashtag Scott Horton Show. So, uh, so there. So I won't be able to see you, but you'll be able to talk with JDA and Fitzy G and the boys. So join up. Uh, I didn't mean to exclude anyone, all of you guys. I'm just not looking at the list. Uh, join up, scotthorton.org slash chat. And then, yeah, so uh, the show's a little disjointed so far, but don't worry, because coming up, Gareth and Ray. That's why you tune into this show. You want to hear Gareth. I do, too. That's why I do the show. How else am I going to get Gareth Porter to talk to me once a week, every week? Already, he's probably sick and tired of me, but nah, he loves me. Um, anyway, I got a picture of me and Gareth eating barbecue together. I ought to show you all that someday. Good old Gareth. Um, yeah, man, so, uh, dang on. Uh, Gareth, he's going to be talking about Syria Huge Syria important stuff to talk about with the uh, heroic Gareth Porter. And then Ray McGovern, he used to be the chief 
of the CIA's Soviet Union analyst division, whatever exactly they called it. The, the, he was the boss of the Soviet analysts at the CIA. I didn't even know that. I, mean, I knew he was a Soviet guy or whatever. I only learned, I think, in the last year or two or something, that he was the boss of them. Which means that really, I got a lot of thinking to do about some of the things I need to ask Ray about what was going on in the 60s and 70s and 80s. There's a lot of things there. 27 years he spent in the CIA. But anyway, he wasn't a throat slitter. He was an analyst. And the point to me is that he's a peacenik who, when he talks about Russia, he knows what he's talking about. Um, you know, he he reads and writes and speaks Russian fluently. Is a master of Russian history. He has, I think, a... There's a great interview of him, a written interview of him over at uh, Salon.com, which I know is a joke, but uh, Patrick L. Smith writes there, and he's not. And Patrick L. Smith interviewed Ray McGovern, and it's really great. And I think he even says something like he has advanced degrees in Russian history and all this stuff. He knows everything about this stuff. And he's a former CIA guy, obviously a professional Cold Warrior during the days of the communist USSR. And... um and I think you'll be interested in what he has to say about the current situation in Eastern Europe. How about that? Oh, look. I forgot to mention. Well, I didn't forget. I'm mentioning it now. Dan Sanchez wrote a new thing. You should go read it. He's really great, man. Antiwar.com. It's the Cold War on the gray zone. The gray zone being civilization. The moderate middle. Where human beings respect each other's rights and dignity. You know, uh, and I mean moderate, not as in political extremist for violating everyone's rights on every issue. I mean moderate in the libertarian sense, as in don't want to hurt anyone. Uh, you and I, we are the enemies of the American War Party and Baghdadi's War Party, too. And so anyway... Great Dan Sanchez there at antiwar.com today. Make sure you read them every Wednesday. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, so more politics. The thing in New Hampshire. So Christie's out. I told y'all. It's amazing, which I'm not taking much credit for this because it's so, you know, obviously obvious. But remember how the TV pretended that Christie was a credible candidate? Oh, yes, Chris Christie. Why, he's a governor and a federal prosecutor and so many people like him. So many people, you mean at cocktail parties where Washington, D.C. politicians and Washington, D.C. media people all get drunk together? Everybody likes him? Because to the rest of us, including those of us who are big fat slobs, he's a big fat slob. And no offense to big fat slobs, but big fat slobs can't be the leader alpha male of the society. Okay? Image, as Scott Adams, the Dilbert uh, cartoonist guy, teaches, image and identity are everything. Glutton-in-chief is not a very sellable program, even in the United States of America. And also, he literally, actually, is a pig, just like he looks. He's the walking abuse of executive power. And 
He's completely corrupt. I take one look at him and I think of Big Pussy from Sopranos. Who they, his best friends ended up shooting him and throwing him in the lake because of what a scumbag he was. Oh, because he was ratting to the U.S. attorney, Chris Christie. Anyway, I thought it was incredible that anyone told him that he was a viable candidate for president at all. I mean, maybe he was supposed to just be there to block Rand on the off chance that he had decided to run as his father or some kind of threat, you know. And then what does he do? He he basically pushes Rubio out in front of the bus right before he gets hit by it, too. All right. Thanks. Who knew there was actually a, a redeeming quality in Chris Christie? He went to full jihad against Marco Rubio, who, by the way, didn't need any help destroying himself, obviously, just like I told you about him. Complete and total dumb ass. Dumber than George W. Bush. Way dumber than George W. Bush. Really. Absolutely incapable of independent thought outside his recited talking points. A complete joke. To even consider Marco Rubio an adult is a stretch. He's nothing but a walking dumb ass repeating whatever talking points the Likud party wrote up for him. And even Americans could just see right through him. No problem. Oh, Rubio Ascendant. Remember that? Rubio Ascendant. Really? Where? Inside at Wall Street Journal headquarters? Is that it? Yeah, we talk with the guys at the Wall Street Journal editorial page, and they are unanimous that Rubio is going to be great. It's going to do great. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I heard the Weekly Standard agrees. Wow, consensus. In spite of the fact he has a vowel at the end of his name and he's running for, to be the leader of the Protestant party. Huh. In spite of the fact that his IQ is probably 92. He makes George W. Bush look like Jeb Bush. Ha! Anyway. Uh, that's funny. Oh, I also thought it was, uh... Eh, who cares? Nobody cares. Enough uh, enough politics. When we get back, uh, I'm going to talk about things that are important. Like wars and stuff. It's the Scott Horton Show. Superior blends of premium coffee. Roasted fresh in Zionsville, Indiana. Darren's coffee satisfies the casual and the connoisseur. Scott Horton Show listeners, visit DarrensCoffee.com and use the coupon code SCOTT at checkout for free shipping. DarrensCoffee.com Because everyone deserves to drink great coffee. You hate government? One of them libertarian types? Or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers? Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still. If you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. All right, y'all, welcome back. 
I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I'm not done talking about politics yet, but, you know, it's sort of kind of important stuff within the context of politics. And actually, I guess probably, I don't know about you, but most people are really only interested in these kinds of issues in the context of the horse race for the offices. So, if I just tell you, listen, the EMP threat is silly, don't worry about that, then you go, huh, okay. But if I say, Jeb Bush, what a clown, now climbing on board this bandwagon about the bogus EMP threat, then you go, oh, okay, maybe, I don't know. Supposedly, seemingly, it's more interesting, right, if it's Jeb and Cruz and the rest of these boobs completely botching this narrative, uh, trying to scare, I mean, just think about how stupid this is. One nuke could kill us all. The people pushing this EMP, electromagnetic pulse, like Frank Gaffney, and he's the one they're all citing, basically, him and his collected cranks. They claim that Iran or North Korea could shut off every circuit in America permanently. And then we would all just starve in the dark. 90% of us would die. Now, if you're a right-winger and you're just into... I saw the other day someone called it doom porn. Nice. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So for some reason, it's hard for me to end the word with an M and start one with a P there. And doom porn. This requires extra little pause, I guess. Anyway, if you're really into being scared of imaginary things, then fine. But for the rest of you, as uh, Gordon Prather, the nuclear weapons physicist, has explained to me in the past, and, you know, more or less in writing as well, if an atom bomb is close enough to you to turn out your lights, you don't really need to worry about your lights. You're dead. Okay? Uh, electromagnetic pulse is caused by hydrogen bombs, and not just that by hydrogen bombs that are uh, made specially to be enhanced radiation, less heat, more, um, more gamma rays, basically, uh, in the explosion. A neutron bomb, as you're familiar with. Um, you know, they're really, uh, you know, they found out about the EMP with, you know, testing um, uh, thermonukes, uh, above the ionosphere back in the 50s. But then they hardened everything to them because they knew the Russians had H-bombs. So uh, certainly the military has hardened everything to EMP grade. And, uh, you know, most much of the rest of American technology at the time in terms of the uh, the electric grid and whatever. But the deal is that... Um, the effect of it was weak. It didn't destroy every light in Hawaii. It just turned them out for a while or whatever, right? Then um, everything can be repaired and and used again. Uh, and then the other thing is that only the United States, Russia, Britain, France, Israel have the power to do this. Because, again, it takes a thermonuke, and not just an H-bomb, but a specially designed enhanced radiation H-bomb, and it has to be delivered 
to just the right spots, plural, above the ionosphere in order to cause the effect. And uh, which would not, you know, lead us to all starve in the dark anyway. And Iran wouldn't be able to do that to us, even if we didn't have the nuclear deal, which we do. They wouldn't be able to do that for 50 years. Unless Russia or China just gave them ready-made H-bombs to do it with, but that's, you know, just question-begging nonsense there. As far as Iran being able to actually do that to us, no, they couldn't. And these liars try to pretend that Iran can make one nuke and then somehow, without the U.S. Navy noticing, sail this nuke to America's east coast and then from there launch a three-stage rocket to put this nuke into space above, I don't know, Nebraska and then fry every circuit in the United States of America permanently. Destroy them all permanently. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's more likely that Rubio will be the president of the United States. I'm still not counting out Jeb. It's more likely that I would be the president of the United States than any of these things. And, by the way, in fact, you know, I mentioned Israel and Britain and France, and and I hope I mentioned China. They have H-bombs and and three-stage rockets, too. But um, I believe that the Americans and possibly the Russians are the only ones who are documented to have ever made enhanced radiation devices, neutron bombs. Now, obviously, Israel could make them and England could make them, but they haven't, as far as I know. Um, So... Anyway, but isn't it funny how, oh boy, is this the consensus on the right? Every dumbass who learns everything he knows from listening to political radio instead of reading. Well, geez, I heard Frank Gaffney and his fellow well-paid liars claim this a few different times. And I see presidential candidates racing to agree that this is a real problem. People like Jeb Bush. And so people just take it for granted. I mean, what are they going to do? Actually learn about it? Actually read about it? But I'll tell you what you can do. You type in EMP and Prather. P-R-A-T-H-E-R. That's Gordon Prather. He's retired now, but he wrote a million articles for Antiwar.com and WorldNet Daily back in the day. He used to make H-bombs for a living. And uh, he knows everything about this. And uh, wrote a lot of great stuff. And then also Jeffrey Lewis, who's bad on a lot of things, the arms control wonk. Uh, but he wrote a couple of great pieces debunking the EMP threat for foreign policy. And I think also for the Federation of American Scientists or something like that. But certainly if you search EMP and Prather and EMP and Jeffrey Lewis, you'll find great debunkings of this nonsense. And then you can know it instead of just repeating what you heard me say. Um, all right, so there's that. Oh, and then the other thing is, I gotta make fun of Rand for a minute. I'm gonna try to not go on and on and on about it. Well, I only got a couple minutes anyway, so that's good. I, I almost can't believe this, but I can. But I just, hmm. You know, it's been seven years. I don't know if y'all know. Some of you probably do, but in 2009, when Rand first started talking about running for Senate, I interviewed him. I was so excited about it. And I'm, you know, we're kind of plugged into the same networks of people here and whatever, right? So I got him on the show and I was so disappointed. I just couldn't believe it. And I could see right what was going on. 
you know, that he thought his problem, his dad's problem was he was just too radical and he needed to dumb this stuff down a little bit. But he was doing it on Guantanamo in Afghanistan and, uh, you know, prosecutions of torturers and stuff like this. So it was clear that he was willing to compromise on the most important issues from the very beginning. And it's just who he is. He's just. But I still just can't get over it. And I'm not really sure why not, except the obvious that I can't stop imagining the counterfactual. Can't Don't you have that same problem? Don't you think of Rand and think, what if he was Ron, but younger and in the Senate with some balls up there? You know, with Rand's willingness to fight, I don't mean to say that Ron doesn't have balls, but just Ron is too much of a gentleman to fight. Rand, he'll fight, but... Over stuff nobody cares about. He'll take all the wrong stands on all the wrong things. Or all the right stands on all the things that nobody cares about. Or, you know, mostly wrong stands on the right things. But if he was just younger, Ron, in the Senate, out there, the the heroic, simple truth teller, you know, good on sound money, good on peace, good on repealing every single regulation in America and setting people free, you know, how great he could have been. And then listen to the denial here after dropping out of Iowa. If the problem were that I'm not libertarian enough and that's why the poll numbers are not higher, then that would be an argument that, oh, libertarians are voting for Donald Trump. So that doesn't make any sense. Hey, Al Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it taste good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrensCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. DarrensCoffee.com. Use promo code Scott and you get free shipping. DarrensCoffee.com. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. All right, y'all, welcome back. So anyway, now nah, i got to keep making fun of Rand here for a second. He absolutely refuses to admit that his strategy was just wrong. And you can see why he would have thought for years and years that his problem was, that his father's problem was he's just too radical. He's never going to get anywhere with anybody like that. And for years and years, Rand was a more moderate political guy. He was just further to the right than Ron. He's not a libertarian. He's more of a conservative. And so certain that he was right. There was a quote somewhere. I'm, I'm like 90% sure that this was a legit quote that at one point he even said, you know, well, I'm a senator, so I've already done much better than my father. And all this. As though he didn't just ride those coattails right into that office. I mean, what in the world is he talking about? Um, but so, the thing is, his theory was disproven years before he ever ran for president. Two years before he, I mean, started running even for Senate. Two years before he ever even started running for Senate. In 2007. Ron Paul whooped Giuliani on the cause of the terrorist motivation. Is it because we're happy and free 
and we let our girls go to junior college and vote in primary elections? Or is it because American military men slaughter Arabs all day, every day, and pay dictators to slaughter Arabs all day, every day, torture them to death, pay the Israelis to bulldoze their homes and build museums of tolerance of us bulldozing your homes on top of the homes they bulldoze, killing people. And uh, Ron said, yeah, no, it's because we've been over there. First the chicken, then the egg. And it was controversial enough. Of course, the establishment thought, oh, what a great way to promote Giuliani of him smashing this weird hick, Paul. And instead, what happened is the American people said, hey, that guy's telling me the truth. And Rudy Giuliani is scum. I get it now. And blam. Ron went from the best kept secret of every libertarian in the world who were we were trying to tell you all about him, but you just wouldn't listen to finally blam household name overnight. And, and what was it about him? It was his radicalism and especially on his willingness to tell the truth, even if you don't like it. Even if it means sticking up for the Branch Davidians when everybody else is howling for their blood. Even if it means opposing war in the face of Rudy Giuliani demanding that you eat your own words in front of a howling mob of lunatics in South Carolina. And anyway, so Ron proved that the American people were ready for his radicalism, I mean, or at least they were willing to uh, be won over to it by the millions and millions. And if Rand had had any principle, he would have seen that his role was to keep moving that ball forward, not to get all wishy-washy and sell us all out and all the great progress we've made in teaching real libertarianism to the American people and the people of the world and try to pander and compromise and sell out to try to achieve power. And just as I said, and, and others did too, but especially me from the very, very beginning, this isn't going to work. Uh, trying to be everything to everyone, he's going to end up being nothing to nobody. And oh my God, the fights I used to get in on Facebook and still on Twitter. People calling me a traitor to Ron and a traitor to libertarianism and a objective Hillary Clinton supporter and all their crazy crap, all their accusations uh, for years. And then even now, Rand says, if the problem was that I'm not libertarian enough and that's why the poll numbers are not higher then that would be an argument that, oh, and then he sticks words in your mouth, libertarians are voting for Donald Trump. So that doesn't really make any sense. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense, but that's not what it's saying. As though there's this is all just some zero-sum game, and everyone who didn't vote for Rand voted for Trump instead. That all the very same people who woulda, coulda, shoulda voted for Rand if he was a lot more like his father. Well, those must be the very same individuals who all turned out for Trump, huh? Says who? Says Rand's own ridiculous, red herring, straw man, fake ass argument. And even if you assume the truth of it, what advantage does Trump have over Rand? Other than... He seems to be a blunt truth teller who says whatever he wants, whether you want to hear it or not. Meanwhile, Rand is known. If you type in here, let's try it right now. Let's type in Rand 
Paul flip flop 129,000 results. Rand Paul, serial panderer. Rand Paul on his history of flip-flops. Rand Paul's biggest flip-flops. Rand Paul, the flip-flop king. Rand Paul wades deep with flip-flops. Rand Paul's defense of his Iran flip-flop does not hold water. On and on and on. Rand Paul's epic ISIS flip-flop. Scandal, scandal. Rand Paul flip-flops on what to call flip-flops. It's disgusting, isn't it? It's disgusting. Let me tell you the one thing Ron Paul ever flip-flopped on. He's no longer for the death penalty. He used to think, man, some of the crimes that these people commit, they just got to be put down, man. They have to be. And look at the, uh, some of the things that people do. But then he decided, you know what? I just don't trust prosecutors and judges to do it right. I just, when we're talking about killing people, I just don't trust the state with that power. No. Now, does that sound like a flip-flop to you? Or that sounds like someone who had principle, who has principle, and changed his point of view on how his principle applied to this issue. That you know what? Freedom is more important. And restricting the ability of government to kill people when they might be mistaken, is that outweighs the need to punish people that severely for even the most heinous crimes. That's not a flip-flop. That is a true gentleman and a statesman right there in the best sense of it. Rand. And 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 seriously, he brought, as uh, Eric Schuler pointed out, and he has a great write-up on this on his blog, The Daily Facepalm, which is a great name for a blog. He pointed out that Rand brought Ron to Iowa at the last minute. Look, everybody, my dad, will you please vote for me now. So somebody decided, hey, Rand, there's no revolution in Iowa. Where is everybody? They don't like you. Maybe if we bring your dad in. But he still is in denial. He still won't admit it. Even though, when it came down to it, running away from his dad only hurt. And he tacitly admitted that by bringing his dad in at the end. Way too little too late. Just like trying to quote Mises and things like this the other day, a couple of weeks ago. Oh, now all of a sudden uh, you're a libertarian, huh? Mr. Albatross around my neck. Give me a break. And seriously, being bad on Iran and Israel-Palestine, the war against the Islamic State, Guantanamo Bay, prison for life without trial, these are unforgivable sins, okay? Rand Paul is scum. Rand Paul is no better a human being than John McCain or Hillary Clinton. Rand Paul, who signed a letter saying Obama stay after 2014 to train and for counterterrorism missions in Afghanistan. These are not tolerable compromises, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, we ought to declare an independent Kurdistan because that's what Sheldon Adelson wants. We gotta promise them borders and go to war to protect them. Go to war against, guarantee the borders, he said. Which would require war against five countries at once. This is not like Ron saying, no, we should not abolish Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security tomorrow. We should abolish the empire to shore those up for grandma and for the poor for now 
as we find a way to transition out of them. Because, yeah, the welfare state, it's bad for everyone, and including the poor who are cashing the checks. we got to undo this slowly and carefully so that we don't hurt people and leave them out in the cold. But the way we're going to shore up our dollar while paying for that welfare state is we're going to abolish the empire. We're going to stop killing people everywhere that Rand wants to keep killing them. And people go, oh, come on, that declaration of war was just a stunt when he tried to declare war against the Islamic State. No, when Ron declared war, uh, issued a declaration of war against Iraq in 2002, that was a stunt. And he explained it at the time. Maybe it's still on C-SPAN.com. I used to have the video of it um, where Ron explains he's voting against it. He's only challenging the other members of the House Foreign Affairs Committee to take responsibility for their actions instead of trying to slough it off onto Bush so it's his fault, not theirs. And he was denounced by Henry Hyde for doing it. He said that part of the Constitution is an anachronism, and we don't do that anymore. But Ron voted against his own declaration of war. He was only making the point quite a bit different. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there, scotthorton.liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. Hey, all Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money, or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MasterSamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code Scott Horton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MasterSamuraiTech.com. All right, y'all, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. And, man, I'm sorry. I got so distracted talking about how much I hate Rand Paul that I forgot to say that, um, uh, and especially because I missed the last two days, I need y'all's help uh, to get the new servers. Um, I went through the whole rigmarole explaining. I'm diverting the YouTube uh, Kickstarter money to buy new servers the the guy who runs the servers for me he chipped in 500 they're 2500 bucks so he chipped in 500 that brought him down that brought the balance what i owe him now down to 2000 so the kickstarter money for the youtube project that's almost right almost 1300 bucks so call it 1300 bucks which means i need another 700 bucks and um i got a guy who's uh, willing to put up some matching funds if i can get you guys uh to help support and i haven't even been on the radio for you know all week this week uh, to let you know, but so far I'm only up uh, 125. So, uh, anybody wants to help uh, to donate to uh, get new servers? Aren't you tired of the server crashing and the podcasts being weeks behind and all this kind of stuff? Uh, donate scotthorton.org/slash/donate. And yes, I happily take bitcoins and whatever you got. Just uh, check out all the info there at scotthorton.org/slash/donate. And thank you very much. I appreciate it. Now, um, the heroic Gareth Porter is on the line. And uh, he's now writing for Middle East Eye a lot of the time, MiddleEastEye.net. 
And I don't know why, Gareth, you couldn't convince them to change your title to something that actually reflects the article that you've written here. But they've just so people can find it, the article is mistitled U.S. position on Syria tilts in favor of Russian intervention, which is <laughs> not really what the article is about. But anyway, so let's just uh, talk about the discrepancy glad, there. Go ahead. I'm glad you've introduced the, the article uh, uh, with that point, because, I, you know, I am very unhappy with the title, and of course, uh, inevitably, that is what it, it's been shown as being uh, virtually everywhere on the net, uh, except for uh, antiwar.com. And, yeah, we changed it for you that. there. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, it's true. I, I am not saying that, that the uh, Obama administration has tilted toward the uh, Russian intervention, but rather that they have adjusted their policy in light of the reality created by the Russian intervention. It's a crucial uh, distinction, but apparently these nuances are a bit too much for... Yeah. Well, uh, and there's just... That ain't even nuance, right? There, there's nothing nuance about that. Recognize the, <laughs> recognizing that your bluff has been called is a lot different than throwing in with your adversary. Right, and, and the point here is that, in fact, uh, John Kerry and, and the Obama administration are simply now doing their best to take advantage uh, to, to minimize the damage that is done to their past uh, strategy and to adjust it so that they can take maximum advantage of it in light of the, the reality, which already existed, that the United States and Russia are, in fact, supporting uh, some of the same forces, basically the, the only viable military force against ISIS on the ground in Syria, uh, is being supported by both the United States and Russia. And so that is, I think, clearly now going to be a more important uh, part of the U.S. strategy in the future. Mm. All right. Now, so, you know, the thing is, is we've had a lot of turning points in this thing. And, you know, uh, you know, uh, on this show and in your writing, although you were mostly working on your Iran book at the time when this really all first started, yes. but... But but right. all of our friends and colleagues and fellow commentators and, and everybody, all the former CIA guys that we like, McGovern, Giraldi, Leverett, and, and, you know, all these things, we've been talking about just the insanity of the U.S. backing the jihadists in Syria in their – it's the Sunni-based insurgency from Iraq led by al-Qaeda in Iraq against Assad, and, and Hillary and Obama took al-Qaeda in Iraq's side ever since 2011. We've been exposing this and explaining this and raging against it, and yet there have been many turning points this whole time where we – could have assumed that, man, they have to turn it around now, and I guess I won't go down the whole list, but they failed to get their regime change war in 2013. That was a big one when the CIA basically mutinied against the accusation that they were supposed to put their names on the accusation that Assad used poison gas there in Damascus, which was huge. You thought you might have thought that would turn the policy around. And then you had well, the fall of Mosul the, and the declaration yeah. of the caliphate in June of 2014. And at that point, it was like, all right, come on. They've got to back off Assad now, and so. But now you're telling me that now they're backing off Assad, and, and but even this is months since the Russians began their intervention. So what's really changed here? You think? Okay, I'm going to introduce uh, a genuine uh, sort of a subtlety or nuance here uh, in order to to explain uh, what what has happened and and what has not happened. Uh, what what has not happened is that the United States has suddenly 
changed its whole posture toward the uh, the state of uh, uh, the 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 Syrian government. That that is to say that the, uh, the the state structure of Syria. Um, I mean, the reality is that the Obama administration has not really wanted to have that overthrown uh, by jihadists or and their allies. Uh, you know, even when they were clearly going along with the arming of, uh, you know, the, the uh, al-Qaeda knockoff in, in Syria and its, and its close allies. Uh, you know, my understanding has been and still is that, that they were going to use the Saudi, Qatari, Turkish support for al-Nusra Front and other uh, Salafist allies of, of al-Qaeda um, to put pressure on the Syrian government and its allies to get Assad to step down with the understanding that they could somehow uh, jigger this so that they would still have the state structure intact and therefore they could uh, have it both ways. And so I think that's been the, the, uh, that's been the, uh, the strategy for the last two, two to three years. Mm-hmm. And, so in other uh, words, they're they're willing to get rid of Assad, but not if the whole damn state has to fall to get rid of him. Is that 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 I I do believe was indeed the calculation. Now what 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 has happened now is that I think they are clearly giving up, uh, even asking Assad to step down or, or demanding, if you will, publicly that that Assad step down, and and this has translated into uh, you know their posture within the context of the. Uh, uh, the Syrian peace negotiations, UN-sponsored, uh, at least nominally, uh, peace negotiations, uh, as well. In other words, they are they are not going to be, uh, and, and they have not told uh, the uh, the opposition, the armed opposition folks, uh, who uh, have been sort of on the uh, on the edges of those negotiations now, boycotting them, that that they are going to uh, call for the for a side step down. That's a really a rather interesting development in the last month or so. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that's the nuance here. It's, it's that they, they are now not even going to push or expect that they can succeed in, in getting uh, a side to step down. Uh, and, and so we, we do have a new ballgame in terms of the politics surrounding the peace negotiations. And, uh, uh, you know that doesn't mean they're going to succeed. I'm not convinced that that's going to happen anytime soon. But if, in fact, they can, uh, if the Russians are successful enough to uh, weaken the Al Nusra Front and other uh, Salafist allies sufficiently, uh, then of course that then it becomes a new a new game in which uh, you could have peace uh, forced on the. Uh, uh, on the armed opposition, because the Saudis and the Turks are incapable of changing that. Hmm. Uh, well, but they're not going to be very happy about that, and especially the Turks have even talked about if the Kurds do too well at sealing the border there, they'll invade to break it. What do you think about well, that? Well, I think that is a very serious threat. I, I agree. I mean, that is what this new development uh, raises as the uh, next the next uh, uh, danger to uh, the situation in, in the Middle East. I mean, it's it's very, very serious, as far as I'm concerned. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a hell of a chessboard. We're going to have you explain a little bit about who all's who and who's on whose side and what the balance of crisis is over there in Syria on the other side of this break. Everybody, it's the great Gareth Porter. Uh, the title of the piece is incorrect, but you need to know it. It's U.S. position on Syria tilts in favor of Russian intervention. It means recognizes that our bluff's been called. But anyway, we'll be right back, y'all. Hey, I'm Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. All right, y'all, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. I'm talking with Gareth Porter about the uh, politics surrounding the disaster in Libya. I mean, pff, Syria. That's a different disaster. Sorry. I don't know. <laughs> the tip of my tongue has so many different American wars on it. You know, I get them uh, shuffled out of order sometimes. I know what you mean, believe me. Um, so listen, yeah, what a, what a damn mess. Let's, uh, I guess you decide, Garrett, the things I need you to help explain to me are, uh, who's who and what's going on at the talks and who's who and what's going on on the ground there. Um, as far right. as, uh, you know, recent gains by the jihadists and recent <clears throat> reversals as well. There are huge events taking place on the ground that yeah. are changing the politics of the whole situation in, in right. all the we capitals. We have to start with, with with what has happened, you know, on the ground as a result of the Russian air offensive, uh, counteroffensive, if you will. Um, and I think the main thing is clearly that uh, that they have, in fact, succeeded in threatening, at the very least, the lines of supply of on this front uh, in the north, um, in, in the northwest of of the country. Uh, from from roughly the Aleppo area, particularly to uh, to the Turkish border, and and this is why uh, you know there is just suddenly there's a a, a huge hue and cry from uh, both supporters of the uh, armed opposition in Syria and sort of the ideological uh, sort of the the advocates of. Uh, humanitarian war, such as Michael Ignatius, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, Weifeltier of the formerly New Republic, uh, in the Washington Post, I guess it was yesterday, uh, sort of decrying the, uh, moral, uh, bankruptcy of, of the United States, uh, for, for refusing to, you know, go to war to prevent the Russians from tilting the military balance within Syria. All this is happening, uh, because clearly some major uh, uh, major tilting of the uh, situation militarily has, has occurred in the past few weeks, um, and whether whether it will be permanent, whether it will be totally successful, remains to be seen. But uh, but certainly the 
possibility that the uh, the Al-Nusra Front uh, of al-Sham um, and other Salafist groups uh, fighting with al-Nusra Front uh, against the Assad regime will be critically weakened uh, uh, is what is uh, on the minds of both sides at this point, including, of course, as you've mentioned uh, before the break, the, the, the Turks, who are very uh, uh, very upset with the fact that, that this has happened and, and their entire strategy uh, has, in fact, been threatened, uh, is threatened. So, you know, whether whether Turkey is actually going to intervene militarily is indeed the uh, the primary uh, question mark at this point hovering over not just the uh, peace talks but over the entire war in Syria. Yeah, but um what about the power of the empire to tell the Turks that hey, look man, you have to do this or that or at least stay within <laughs> these lines. I mean, come on, who's the satellite and who rules the world? Here? Well, I mean, this this is a question that I I think we need to talk about some more and it applies to both Turkey and Saudi Arabia. In theory, of course, you're right. I mean, the United States is the superpower, not the Turks. Not Turkey, not Saudi Arabia. And let me add here so, real quick, too, for you to address that. It kind of sounds just like plausible deniability like Ronald Reagan. Oh, it's it's our allies doing it, not us. But come on. Yeah, but yeah, but it's not. I mean, the, the point that I want to make here is that uh, in the Middle East, the United States uh, has the dominant military and economic power, but uh, when it comes to uh, policy choices... Uh, it, it is, uh, in a way, held hostage by its allies. Why? Because, you know, the United States military, the Pentagon, wants those bases so badly that uh, it does not want to rock the boat. That is why, for example, uh, in 2011, when Bahrain uh, was, was shooting down demonstrators, and the Saudis uh, sent in uh, troops to help them to put down demonstrators by force, what did the Obama administration do, despite the fact that it started out saying, oh, you can't do this, you know, that's, that's beyond the pale. They pulled back and they did nothing, and they essentially made their peace with that situation. The reason being that the Saudis... Uh, are the real power in Bahrain. The Bahrainis don't control their own destiny. They're completely dependent on the Saudis economically. And the Saudis let it be known that uh, that this was not acceptable. And, of course, uh, Bahrain is uh, a, a, non, a major non-NATO ally of the United States. Why? Because of the naval base, uh, the Fifth Fleet uh, naval base uh, in, in uh Minami, I guess is how you pronounce it. Uh, uh, so basically, this uh, stake that the, uh, the national security state has in uh, in Bahrain, which means the stake that the Saudis control, gives the Saudis uh, huge leverage over the Obama administration because Obama is not willing to stand up to the national security state. Mm. And the same thing, of course, is true in, about Turkey because of encirclement. So, you know, I think that, that the real politics of this are different from, you know, what appears to be, you know, U.S. powers tell, tell them what to do. Again, I mean, obviously, that's what should happen, and it, and it would happen if it were not for the case, uh, for the fact that the national security state's uh, pro, uh, bureaucratic 
uh, interests prevail over the national interests. So in other words, Kerry knows that he doesn't even have the clearance from the Pentagon to read any kind of riot act or ultimatum to the Turks. Well, and remember, I, I wrote this story a few weeks ago about how the Pentagon, um, the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, essentially were uh, undermining, were trying to undermine as best they could, the regime change policy, um, both in Libya and in Syria, by sharing uh, the uh, uh, the information, the intelligence they have on uh, ISIS uh, and uh, uh, presumably on Nusra Front. I mean, I'm pretty sure it was on Nusra Front as well mm-hmm. with uh, the Russians. Um, <laughs> and, of course, that meant sharing it with the Syrian government as well. So, uh, and, and I mentioned at the end of the story that even though the Joint Chiefs uh, were, were not uh, in favor of regime change in Syria, nevertheless, they did not uh, uh, favor any crackdown on Qatar for its role in supporting the jihadists. Why? Because Qatar, of course, has uh, is host to a major uh, army facility in, in Qatar, right. uh, which the U.S. military is not willing to give up. And so they pulled back. They, they pulled their punches. That, everybody, is the great Gareth Porter. You see why I have him on all the time. It's because of all the stuff that he knows and all the great articles he writes. Thanks very much for coming back on the show, Gareth. Thanks, Scott. My pleasure. The book, y'all, by the way, I almost forgot to say, is Manufactured Crisis. It is the book on the Iranian nuclear program, for real. Manufactured Crisis by the great Gareth Porter. Go and spend money on it right this minute. This article is at MiddleEastEye.net. U.S. position on Syria tilts in favor of the fact of Russian intervention. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. And uh, next up is our friend Ray McGovern. For 27 years, he was an analyst at the CIA and including was the uh, uh, the guy who did the uh, morning briefing for Vice President Bush in the Reagan years and was uh, before that the chief, I think before that, was the chief of the uh, Soviet Union Analyst Division uh, there, which I only learned recently. And uh, he's one of the founders, he's the principal founder, I think it's fair to say, of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. And by the way, you ought to read everything they've ever put out. I think you'll learn a lot, seriously. Uh, Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, pretty easy to Google up uh, a treasure trove there. Uh, Welcome back to the show, Ray. How are you? Thanks, Scott. Doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Oh, I should also say that your website is raymcgovern.com, and uh, there's a great um, archive of Ray's stuff at consortiumnews.com, Robert Perry's site, consortiumnews.com. Tons of great stuff there on all kinds of issues. But, uh, yeah, today we discuss Russia and uh, the new Cold War, as everyone agrees. It used to be that um, critics... You know, like at antiwar.com, we would say, oh, it's the new Cold War, but now that's really kind of caught on in the imagination of the mainstream media. And, of course, according to them, they're Americans, it's all Russia's fault. 
Um, and then, so it's very interesting in a way. I under, I, I know you can appreciate the, at least on the surface, the irony of the former chief of the CIA's, uh, USSR analyst division explaining that, you know, really it was America who started it, uh, as you do. But I think it's pretty powerful if people give you a listen. So, um, can you tell us, I guess, can you start with right now and how bad you think the crisis is and then maybe explain, you know, the most important points and how the U.S. made it this way, Ray? Well, yes, Scott, it is pretty serious right now. Um, I was thinking of how Putin and his lieutenants uh, will be uh, talking this morning about the results of New Hampshire. <laughs> you know, uh, Hillary Clinton has called Putin Hitler, you know, so, I mean, you could see where she's coming from. I think that they're breathing a big sigh of relief on the prospect that it's no longer a done deal that Hillary will be acceding to power here, but that maybe a more reasonable person will be coming in. Now, as they look at the Republican side, I imagine they're scared to death. Now, Putin can say to his uh, military, look, um, the anti-ballistic missile system uh, don't worry about it. Uh, it's just the biggest um, uh, welfare system for uh, for contractors and Wall Street that has ever been devised. They make out lots of billions and billions out of this, and it'll never work. Now, why can't he say that? Because I really got to get an applause button here, Ray, for when you come up with stuff like this in the middle of the show. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, you you know you really. Uh, you really have to say that uh, Putin has to plan for the worst. That's simply the way militaries work. And so what's he doing? Well, he authorized the uh, exercise of strategic rocket forces uh, in the coming weeks. They're going to go out on maneuvers. They're going to go from place to place uh, to maybe test as to how their mobile systems can elude surveillance from U.S. surveillance systems. And they're exercising just as they did during the real Cold War. Now, that's, as they say these days, concerning. <laughs> that's anxiety-producing. Because if the generals in Moscow get the idea that our generals consider that with all the anti-ballistic missile systems so-called in the Black Sea and the Baltic and in Poland and Romania... Uh, if if our military gets the idea that they can nip in the bud the Soviet, the Russian uh, intercontin- intercontinental missile system, then you have a situation that has not existed since before 1972, where there was a balance of terror because there was no guarantee that someone might not try a first strike. What's a first strike? That's a strike where you guarantee that you can obliterate the other side's nuclear potential without uh, suffering uh, you know, undue damage to your own country. In 1972, and this was the luck of the draw, I was out there in Moscow when the ABM, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, was signed, and that was key. That was key to the balance of power, not the balance of terror. Why do I say that? Because under that treaty, each side guaranteed that it would not build more than two anti-ballistic missile sites in its country. Why only two? Because then there could never be confidence that you could do a first strike and prevent a, a strike against you. Mm-hmm. Now, that was in, in, 
in being until Bush came in. It's one of the first things he did. Oh, I don't think that we'll do the we'll we'll, we'll opt out. There were opt out provisions, of course, there usually are, uh, but he opted out of the anti ballistic missile treaty, and it was that that uh, called a halt, really, uh, to what had uh, had gone like topsy uh, an arms race where thousands and thousands of ICBMs and bombers and, and missiles under the under the sea, submarine-launched ballistic missiles, uh, were threatening, you know, threatening at a hair's trigger um, the devastation of our planet. Uh, that has been rescinded. The, uh, uh, both sides now are pouring immense wealth into updating these missile systems and the warheads that they that they can carry and it makes no sense at all except except for the military industrial security services media congressional complex and they are making hand over fist in money yeah and you know i forget if this has ever come up on the on the show with you uh, ray but i'll i'll mention that there's a guy named klaus who has posted virtually the same comment on my various interviews, whether or not about Russia issues, thousands and thousands of times. Out of 4,000 interviews, probably 3,000 of them have the same comment by Klaus. And they say, he's quoting experts about, here's what happens when America achieves first strike capability, then Russia goes to hair trigger warning. Already, they're on itchy as hell trigger finger warning, but this makes it hair trigger where the slightest breeze could get us all killed because they cannot risk the possibility of any possible first strike actually being one. And so if Norway launches a missile, but the communication doesn't make it through the chain of command, humanity's done. Yeah, the technical term that is used around here in Washington is launch on warning. In other words, uh, you that's don't what have, I was trying to think of. <laughs> yeah, you don't have thirty minutes anymore, right? All you got is about—I mean, you know, yeah, thirty minutes is what we used to used to say. Well, you know, we might have that before we'd have to launch. But now you're on a hair trigger, as, as you put it, and um, and Putin. And Lavrov, the foreign minister, and his uh, his defense minister have made no bones about that. When um, you know, we're getting to the uh, second anniversary of the uh, coup that we mounted in Kiev, that was on the 22nd of February. Now, on the, the 23rd, capital of Ukraine, Ukraine, Kiev, uh, capital of Ukraine, and uh, we orchestrated this coup. Actually, George Friedman, who heads up Stratfor, uh, <laughs> one of the more reputable think tanks, uh, he he let himself say back in December of two years ago, uh, this was the most blatant coup in history. <laughs> well, why did he say that? Well, you know, they say that the revolution will not be televised, right? Well, this coup was YouTubeized with our um, Assistant Secretary of State for, for European Affairs, Victoria Nuland, telling the, our ambassador in Kiev, exactly what was going to happen, uh, that Klitschko and the others could wait in the wings. Yats is the guy. Yats is our guy. And sure enough, on the 22nd of February, Yats becomes prime minister, and, and the pro-Russian folks are told, well, 
Ron Michael, yeah. Wait, I'm sorry. Right, hold it right there. We got to take this break. Everybody, just Google up "f the EU" and you can listen to that leaked, intercepted phone call yourself during the break here instead of the dang commercials. And then we'll be right back with the heroic Ray McGovern from Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Right after this. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. If this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Roberts and Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Roberts and Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Talking with the great Ray McGovern. And I know it probably sounds crazy, right? We're sitting here talking about the possibility of nuclear war with Russia over what now? And yet we're talking with the former head, the former chief of the Soviet Union analysts at the CIA, Ray McGovern. So uh, this ain't nothing. Uh, and, and at the break, we're interrupted by the commercials there. Uh, but you were mentioning about how the USA overthrew the government of Ukraine in uh, two years ago, in February of 2014, and what's that all got to do with it, Ray? Well, it has everything to do with it, really. Um, if you go back to when the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union imploded a year or two later, um, we persuaded the Russians to withdraw their troops. There were, there were almost 300,000 troops, can you believe it, in East Germany at the time, and they withdrew them. Uh, in, re- in the return for the quid pro quo of not moving NATO one inch toward the east. Let me just now, repeat that for people so that they understand what we're talking about here. Picture your old globe or whatever, where the Soviet Union went from from Russia's border westward all the way halfway across Germany, and they withdrew their troops from all of those countries, which was how many countries in Eastern Europe that they were occupying at that point, and never even mind South Asia or you know Central Asia. Well, we used to say six at that time. It was the Warsaw Pact, uh, which was the counterpart of NATO. The Warsaw Pact was disbanded a year or two after the Soviet Union imploded. So, uh, what was NATO's role? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, these institutions have a way of uh, of developing the kind of bureaucracy that uh, kind of perpetuates itself. And so uh, they had to figure out, you know, what we're going to do with NATO. And then, of course, Bill Clinton came in with with uh, uh, Madeleine Albright and others and say, hey, uh, did we promise the Russians that we wouldn't uh, go farther east? They, well, yeah, uh, Secretary of State James Baker, that's what he said. Uh, but where is it? Where is it written down, says Bill Clinton? Show me. Well, it wasn't written down. And so, you know, Bill Clinton's a lawyer. He said, <laughs> what are they going to do if we double, mark my words, if we double the number of NATO countries from 12 to 24, all of them to the east of Germany? What are they going to do? Nothing. They can't do anything. So promise the schmamases we're going to get and do this. Now, I had an opportunity, Scott. I don't usually share this kind of thing, but I, I talked with one of Gadabachov's main foreign policy advisors. He, he now teaches at the University of Moscow. And he was there. You know, He was one advising him in 1990, 1991, 92. And I said, uh, what, why wasn't that agreement, why wasn't that quid pro quo written 
sitting down. <laughs> and he said, well, Ray, uh, two things. One is, um, the Warsaw Pact still existed. Um, Germany had to be read in on all this. After all, we're talking about uh, reunifying Germany. Uh, so those were two bureaucratic reasons. But the biggest reason, and he looked me right in the eye and says, we trusted you. Whoa. Anyhow, what happened, of course, was NATO did expand to the east. And then we had one regime change too many when uh, Victoria Nuland at the State Department and her CIA confreres decided, well, we'd use whatever we could, even if they're proto-fascist forces, to overthrow the government in Kiev, and then we'll have Ukraine in NATO. That is what I mentioned was a regime change too far, because the, the Russians had made it abundantly clear that that was a net. Okay, <laughs> there's a great, there's a great Scott, there's a great. Uh, uh, embassy cable released by WikiLeaks, courtesy Bradley or Chelsea Manning. And, the t well, you know, if I've seen one Moscow cable, uh, State Department cable, I've seen about 3,000. So this is authentic. And, and the title is, Niet means Niet, Lavrov on Moscow's red line regarding Ukraine in NATO. And it goes on to say, Lavrov, the foreign minister then and now, called me in today, and he said, uh, Mr. Ambassador, do you know what NIT means? <laughs> and of course, I said, of course I do. He said, well, look, Ukraine and NATO, NIT. Do you understand that? Because if you even try that, uh, there's going to be a real trouble. There will be civil war, I guarantee you, in Ukraine, and we will have to face the prospect of having to intervene to pre preserve our security on that border. So NIT means NIT, Okay. Now, by the way, by the way, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I yes. just want to say I, I think it's important to say Chelsea Manning's doing 35 years in the brig for bringing yeah. us us this yeah. information. Thank yeah. you. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. So uh, what happens? Well, that was the first of February 2008. On the third of April, so two months later, NATO uh, at a summit, NATO and its wisdom in Bucharest summit said. Uh, Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO. So uh, you got you get uh, the Washington thumbing its nose at Russia. Why? Well, because they couldn't do anything about it. Well, now Russia can do something about it. And when this all hit the fan, so to speak, and uh, and Putin convened his national security advisors the day after the coup. Um, it's very clear. It's very clear in a movie that was made and, and, and produced on, on Russian television saying, uh, you know, uh, what are we going to do about Crimea? Uh, they, they say that uh, they want to join NATO now. What's going to happen to our, our base there in, in Crimea? Now, stop. And Give so, us a little bit of background on that base. I know it's very important. Well, uh, it goes back to Catherine the Great uh, about the time of our revolution. That's when she consolidated Russia's rule down that far south. And it became the sole and only <laughs> historically warm water, that is, ice-free port for the Russian Navy. It's been that forever uh, since then, okay? Mm -hmm. So what happened... Guys, Can I add one thing to that? That besides, besides the, the 220-something uh, year history of them owning it and God knows how many wars with the Brits and whoever else over it, too, uh, Eric Margulies pointed out that the Soviets, the Russians, really lost 
hundreds, three or four hundred thousand men defending Crimea from the Germans during World War II. So that's like the Alamo times 10 million zillion, right? Like the importance of Crimea to the Russian imagination, never even mind the real, the reality of the thing is we don't have anything comparable to that. It would be, you know, like somebody coming taking Virginia from America. Well, yeah, and uh, when you think about the the Nazis, that the Ukrainian Nazis like Bandera, that cooperated with the with the Germans and put down, uh, you know, executed many Poles, uh, Jews, and Russians, then there's a very bitter history there. But all of that had been sort of repaired uh, when the Soviet Union was whole and complete, uh, even during Khrushchev's time after he took over from Stalin. Um, it was it was all one body there, the Ukraine and, and Russia proper. They they all come out of the same identical civilization around Kiev just uh, one millennium ago. So what happened? Well, Khrushchev thought he'd he need a little bit more support from his uh, Ukrainian folks there. And so he said, hey, let's make it a separate uh, little, uh, let's make Ukraine, uh, you know, kind of a separate uh, part of this Russian and uh, Russia. And let's, uh, let's give them... Give them the Crimea, too. Well, that was an accident of history. That was a political move. There was no plebiscite then. It was simply an ukaz, uh, an order from Khrushchev. And so when they did run a plebiscite, uh, no one was shocked when it ran something like 95 96% wanted to rejoin Russia. And so they did. Now, did that violate the Bucharest, uh, the uh, Budapest Memorandum? Uh, that was concluded between the British, us, and, and Russia, saying that uh, uh, no no offensive weapons should be used or there should be territorial integrity. Yeah, it did. But so did the coup, you know. And without the coup, there wouldn't be any uh, annexation of Crimea. Most people in America have been so malnourished on good information that they bought the notion that, well, you know, a lot of people died and Russian aggression when they sent their troops into Crimea. You know how many people died? Zero. The Russians already had twenty, twenty-five thousand troops there by by uh, by agreement, but the with the Ukrainian government, and they very, very, you know, these green men. Well, they took over all the all the government institutions before anybody knew what was going on. And all so, very independent polling has shown that. The very super majority numbers, 80, 90 something percent numbers from the uh, plebiscite on the uh, annexation to Russia, that those are all, you know, German pollsters and other independents have gone in there and verified those numbers. Yeah, Absolutely. well, there were people there watching the, the plebiscite. But, you know, what I'd like to add here is that the day before the plebiscite on the 17th of April, uh, 2014, uh, Putin made a big speech, a really big speech, okay? And in it, he said this, I want to say a few words about our talks on missile defense. This issue, missile defense by NATO, is no less, and it probably is even more important, than NATO's eastward expansion. Incidentally, our decision on Crimea was partially prompted by this period, end quote. Well, there you have it. We initially were going to have some anti-ballistic missile stationed in the Czech Republic. They went wobbly about it. The Poles, now they're going to throw it. Romania, they're going to throw it. So what did Bobby Gates, who is the defense secretary, say? Ah, I know what I'll do. 
let's put them on ships, okay? Let's put them on ships. We can go into the Black Sea. We can go into the Baltic. And, you know, this is a real sore point. Well, ostensibly, they were supposed to begin tomb. Iran? <laughs> Iran didn't even have missiles that reached them that long, much less a nuclear weapons program. They had a nuclear program, but not weapons, okay? So now we have an agreement which... And when Bush first said that, everybody laughed at it. And it was yeah. it was ridiculous. Putin laughed about it on TV, but even the TV news anchors laughed about. It. They're putting anti missile missiles in Poland on the Russian border, and and uh, you know, or, or whatever, however many miles away uh, from Moscow. And this is about Iran, <laughs> whatever. And then after, in fact, I think they always laughed about it until Obama said it. And then everyone's like, oh, uh, I guess that uh, must be really why they are doing it. Or maybe North Korea. Some people still say North yeah. Korea, but they don't look at the globe. Uh, the point I'm trying to make is uh, they can't trust us on this issue. And proof positive is when Obama was overheard in a conversation with the then Russian President Medvedev in Seoul on the 26th of March, 2012, so four years ago. And what happened? Uh, Mujicic says, look, you know, we really need some movement against this missile defense. We're not fooled. It's not against Iran. It's against us. And what what uh, Obama said, and you can hear it on the tape, uh, on these issues, especially missile defense, uh, 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 we can do this, but uh, but not not now. Uh, let me uh, let me get reelected. Uh, let's see. What does he say? I have the quote. Uh, he says. Uh, uh, and only, yeah, give me some space. Uh, I need to have some space. Medvedev, yeah, I understand. And the ABC News report producer is, is going out of his gourd listening to this. Hey, Medvedev, I understand your message. You need some space. Space for you, Obama. Yeah, this is my last election. After my election, I will have more flexibility. Well, that's what, you know, if he thought he did, he was sadly mistaken or maybe did, never intended to do it. But you're a Russian, right? And you're listening to all this in retrospect and say, that was four years ago. They're going ahead with this, like, bunkers. It's the biggest, uh, uh, you know, the biggest welfare system for for predator arms traders, what, what Pope Francis calls the blood-drenched arms trade, and it's never going to stop. And does it endanger our security? Well, it sure as hell does. And so where are we? We're at... Uh, we're at hair trigger missile defense, and do the Russians want to be in that position? I don't think so. Nobody wants to be in that position. We know how close we've come in the past. There have been several instances where only one human being, only one human being said, no, this is crazy, and, and, and did not deploy, did not push the right buttons that he was instructed to under great, great pressure and under great jeopardy. So... Do we want to go back to that? I don't think so. But uh, do the American people know anything about this? I don't think so either. Yeah. Well, now, and I'm sorry, we're we're over time. But if it's up to me, I'll interview you all afternoon. So whenever you got to go, just let me know. But I got more to, to ask you about if you want. Sure. So <laughs> I'm, I'm okay. Yeah. Let me let me narrow down on this thing about the military industrial complex because on one hand, okay, it's just a pat answer. But then on the other hand, I mean, that's basically really the bottom line here is that. The, the combine between the generals and their contractors and their influence in Congress. They just have us on this suicide mission, the same one we've been on since 
the National Security Act was signed, basically, and there's just nothing that can be done to break this Iron Triangle until we're all dead. That's basically what you're telling me, I think. Yeah, you know, Scott, uh, let me give you a little vignette here. Uh, after 9-11, I mean, immediately after 9-11, I was desperately searching for something good that might come out of it, right? And I said to myself, aha, I got it. Uh, Carl Levin, the uh, the head of the uh, Senate Armed Forces Committee, uh, had put a hold on funding millions and millions and tens of millions of dollars for an ABM system, Okay. So McGovern says to himself in his great political wisdom, well, at least that's going to hold. I mean, this is not the threat anymore, for God's sake. The threat is the, these uh, crazy terrorists and uh, ABMs are not going to work against Osama bin Laden. So at least, at least Levin's going to be able to keep his hold on these tens of millions, up to billions of dollars for an unnecessary, a provocative, and most people think an unworkable anti-ballistic missile system. Guess what? <laughs> Two weeks later, Carl Levin signs off on it. Now, how do you figure that? Well, you figure that by looking at how much money Carl Levin gets from the uh, Rayathons, the, uh, the Lockheeds, the, whatever the people make all these things. And the, the, the congressional people are deep, deep into it. That's why, you know, when one of the candidates says, uh, the status quo is just not uh, not possible anymore. Uh, it's true. You've got to change a lot of the congressmen as well, and you've got to give them some some challenge to do things in an honest way and not to get bought. So, as I as I reflect on Putin and his associates this morning, I see them kind of saying, "Well, you know, uh, if we can just hang in there and uh, work with Obama to the extent he's his own man." and still build up our military, but uh, uh, try to persuade him not to try anything untoward, then maybe, just maybe, um, if the Democrats win and the person who called me Hitler doesn't win, then maybe there's a chance we can go back to the days of John Kennedy where we could work out a decent relationship because there is really nothing, really nothing that prevents the kind of cooperation that was just nipped in the bud when Kennedy was killed. Well, and now so, or even Nixon in the detente, you know, I'd settle for Kissinger at this point when it comes to Russia. Or I, I shouldn't say that, but actually he was on the right side of the Ukraine coup issue, right? And blame the USA, rightly blame the USA for for uh, picking that conflict. Yeah. But obviously I'm think... being tongue-in-cheek about Kissinger, but but even well, no, even, he... even even Kissinger Nixon was better than what we got now on this, right? <laughs> well, in a sense it was. You know, even the Kissinger during the Ukraine, and when it all started, he says, you know, uh, uh, blackening Putin, calling him the devil, is not a foreign policy. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's true, but it certainly sells a lot of weapons. You know, I'll give you a little microcosmic glance here. Uh, there's a arms manufacturer trader called Mafai in, in, in Germany, okay? They have a French counterpart, I forget the name of it. But they were commissioned uh, to do the, to build the common European battle tank. You know, that's about 10 years ago, right? So you get all this stuff going, and uh-oh, it sort of ran aground because, well, the threat was not really all that <laughs> tangible. Against whom, right? The Russians were not misbehaving. So what do you do? You get the Russians to misbehave. You threaten them. You cause a coup on their on their frontier, 
And then when they when they look out for their own interests, aha, they're aggressors. Uh, they got to be contained. We got to send more American troops there. Three billion dollars more for 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 Pershing or for not Pershing, but Abrams tanks that don't work. I mean, these are sitting ducks on a modern battlefield with the missiles available to the Russians and others. But, hey, lots of money. You know, it really comes down to cui bono, who profits from this thing. Mm -hmm. And profits is the correct word. Well, and I hate to buy into some bogus propaganda because it very well could be bogus propaganda. But on the face of it, it makes sense that, you know, as as they say, the new generations of Russian and Chinese fighters will be at least a match or more than a match for the F-35s, because the F-35s are complete pieces of junk, because they're not made to be good jets. They're made to just transfer money out of the Treasury. And so in in that sense, you know, Lenin laughing about uh, them hanging themselves or will sell them the rope to hang themselves and that kind of thing, they can, if they, since they mean serious business, hey, let's make a good fighter jet with modern technology, and they're actually trying to accomplish that, they can do it for a hell of a lot cheaper on a hell of a lot smaller economy than... Uh, America, where our almost our whole economy exists just to transfer wealth to Lockheed to make jets that don't fly. Well, you're right. Uh, the F-35 has all the bells and all the whistles, except they forgot how to, uh, do a little thing, they forgot how to supply oxygen so that the pilots don't fall asleep. <laughs> and, yeah. and they it's not fast. Couple, it can't climb. More. It can't turn. It can't hold more than a couple of bombs. It's not stealthy. It can't fly it at night or in the rain or... During yeah, but, moisture, but the arms, the arms dealers and makers are so powerful that they just get you know supplemental uh, appropriations to make it better. And you know we're not going to lose this whistle, put this whistle on, and that. And I don't know how good the Russian fight. I used to know a lot about this stuff, but if the profit uh, margin there is not as great in Russia or China. Uh, it just makes common sense that they can they can build these things, and they've acquitted themselves quite well. I understand in Syria, they build these things for far less, and they work far better. So, you know, uh, it's just uh, you know it's a system that uh, it's got to change. And the good news about last night there in New Hampshire is that there's a realistic process prospect now uh, that uh, we're not. You know, we're not frozen into this, that uh, there can be enough grassroots, and I'm talking grassroots, you know, $37, $27 a throw, grassroots movement that gets out in the street and not only elects a decent president, but hopefully one house at least of the Congress that will not uh, defy him at every at every turn. Yeah. Well, I'm not so uh, optimistic about Sanders, but I could certainly see a million ways that Hillary is worse, if anybody wants to put it that way. But, you know, it's interesting, too, that Trump, uh, who is absolutely avowedly horrible on many issues, says about Russia, come on, why we got to fight with Russia? You know what? You can't fight with everybody. Maybe we should just get along with them. You know, this guy Putin, I can do business with him. He's all right. You know what he's doing? He's looking out for his own interests. Yeah, well, that's what a leader's supposed to do. Let me deal with him. Uh, you know, I hate to quote Trump as like the fount of wisdom or something like that, but I guess he's from New York, not D.C., and that makes a difference, huh? What the hell? Well, 
Yeah, uh, he talks a good game. Uh, He also says he's going to bring back waterboarding and worse. Oh yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, don't get me wrong about that. I'm not. Don't. I'm. I don't. I. I'm sure Sanders is a million times better than him, and and he's probably as bad as Hillary on a lot of things. But but on the Russia issue, he's basically all I'm saying is he's not locked into Kagan's talking points on this issue. You're right. He's saying this is ridiculous. Why would we fight with the Russians? Which is in (laughs) fact, you know. And maybe he doesn't even mean it, but it shows that he knows what every man in every living room in America is thinking. Why do we got to fight with the Russians? Wasn't that a long time ago? What is this? Well, that's what the established. That's why the establishment hates him so much. And I'm not so sure about every American. I think every American has been kind of exposed so much to this uh, Russian aggression, Russian this, Russian that. You know, I had a, uh, a professor, a woman professor from a local university here in Washington. She came and dressed a group that groups of, pro- of the progressives, and she said, "You know, at Sunday school last Sunday, my eight-year-old son came home and he had drawn a poster and had said, Poutine, don't you know the commandment, thou shalt not kill.'" And she beamed with pride, and everybody shook their heads. Oh, isn't that nice? So. Always the skunk at the picnic. <laughs> and I said, what's the illusion there? And she says, oh, Crimea, of course, Crimea. The, the invasion of Crimea, taking Crimea from Ukraine. I said, well, uh, how many people get killed? Oh, hundreds, probably thousands. So we, we don't know. I said, well, that is, you're correct in saying you don't know because the correct answer is zero. It was an incredible, it was an incredible take back. Yeah. Uh, from from a, a putsch that had happened in the Capitol, and no one got killed. Oh, that can't be true. No, I said, I can't. Well, it can't be true <laughs> if you listen to what passes for the pap. Now, to be fair, Ray, I think two bullets were fired into the air as warning shots. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you're so, always a stickler. For I don't know if that counts precision. for in anger or not. It was more like, hey, guys, back up again. <laughs> you know. A couple of birds, huh? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I take your point. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just. Yeah. So all I'm saying here is that uh, it's it's a very dreary thing here, because people that I respect, highly educated people, uh, you know, they buy the notion. Putin bad. Putin very bad. Putin some sometimes has no shirt on. Putin rides horse with no shirt on. Putin invade Ukraine. Putin very very bad. Threatening us. We need to build more sophisticated nuclear weapons. My God, we've lost our head. Man, I'm going to go try to find mine right now. Thanks very much, Ray. I sure appreciate your time again. You're most welcome, Scott. Take care now. All right, y'all. That is the great Ray McGovern. He's at raymcgovern.com, at consortiumnews.com, and um, veteran intelligence professionals for sanity. Of course, we keep an archive of hundreds and hundreds of articles. Uh, You can find his name on the right side in the margin there at antiwar.com. And that's it for today. See you all tomorrow.